Dr. Jay Schrader from the Baskin Palmer Institute in Miami, Florida. And I have the pleasure of bringing you this new Retina Radio Journal Club with Bitbuckle Society VBS. I'm joined by three of my friends and colleagues from around the country. First in alphabetical order, Dr. Sabin Dang from the Retina Institute in St. Louis. Welcome, Sabin. Thanks, Jay. Next in alphabetical order, Dr. Brian Doe from the Retina Group of Washington and also an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Georgetown University in Washington, DC. Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me. Last but not least, Dr. Avni Finn, who is in the Bay Area as part of Northern California Vit Retina Vitreous Associates. Avni, welcome. Thank you, Jay. So the first paper we're gonna talk about, the title is Primary Retinal Detachment Outcome Study Report Number Two. This is the PRO study group, and this was the phagic retinal detachment outcomes. Avni, you wanna tell us a little bit about this paper? Sure. Um, so, you know, this paper, the main objective of this paper was to compare methods of repairing um, phagic primary retinal detachments with three different methods. Um, and we know that, you know, depending on the surgeon, you might ask, you might get three different approaches or opinions for how to uh, repair a retinal detachment. And we don't have many great studies really helping us compare these surgical treatments and the outcomes. So this was a really data-rich study looking at three methods of repair, primary scleral buckle, primary vitrectomy, and then combined buckle vitrectomy, and looking at the outcomes of these three methods in repairing phagic detachments. This was a multi-center retrospective study, and their primary outcome measure was a single surgery anatomic success, which they defined as retinal reattachment at 90 days without a return to the OR. And then secondary outcomes they looked at was final visual acuity. And although this was a retrospective study, I, they did a really good job at controlling for a lot of confounding factors um, and those that might influence a surgeon's decision to choose one procedure over another. So for example, they excluded patients with any sort of trauma, um, any sort of like proliferative neovascular disease or uveitis. Um, they excluded characteristics that strongly weighted patients towards a primary or surgeons towards a primary vitrectomy, like the presence of vitreous hemorrhage, the presence of any PVR, having a significant cataract or a GRT, um, and then also kind of excluded factors that influence surgeons towards doing a primary buckle, like a young patient aged less than 40. And then those that we might choose, you know, more often to do a buckle vit, like a really extensive detachment more than nine clock hours. And so uh, out of a total of uh, over a thousand phagic RDs, they included 715 surgeries in this study. And in short, what the results showed was that the single surgery anatomic success rate was the highest with scleral buckle at 92% followed like thereafter by scleral buckle vitrectomy combined at 91% and vitrectomy alone was at 83%. And they found that doing either buckle or combined buckle vitrectomy was significantly superior in terms of single surgery anatomic success to PPV alone. And what was also interesting was that these out anatomic outcomes were superior even when you accounted for the status of the macula and then their secondary outcome, which was looking at visual outcomes, um, scleral buckling also had significantly better visual outcomes than the PPV or combined PPV buckle group, even when they looked at the formation of cataract and macula status. Fantastic summary. 
And before we dive into discussion, always important with these papers to discuss limitations. So any big limitations our, our listeners should be aware of? Yeah, you know, I think um, some of the limitations that, first of all, it was a retrospective study. Um, so you can't control for, and there were multiple surgeons involved. So you can't control for a lot of the surgeon factors, which is why I think a lot of these surgical studies are, um, you know, oftentimes you have to kind of take the results with a grain of salt because everybody operates differently. You can't control for how much vitrectomy or shaving is done, um, those sorts of things. I think the surgeon factor is probably the most important thing to consider here. Let's dive right in. Brian, I think Omni really hit the biggest point here and, and the big takeaway everyone's discussed is this comparison of buckle alone versus buckle bit versus vitrectomy alone, single operation success. And we can get it, we can debate later whether single operation success should be a metric that's used to judge the success of retinal detachment surgery. Other studies have looked at final visual acuity or at final anatomic success, regardless of the number of procedures. But we'd sing, just talk about single anatomic surgery success. Does that surprise you? I mean, and how do we kind of balance this in our minds with the idea that scleral buckles are declining actually, not increasing over time in their use amongst American surgeons and surgeons around the world? So, you know, having come from a training program where, you know, the use of buckles, especially in fake attachments was emphasized, I'm not particularly surprised by these data. Um, you know, Avni touched upon, you know, the fact that, you know, these data are retrospective and, you know, the study is not perfect, but, you know, given the circumstances, I think, uh, you know, the, the folks who put these studies together really did as good of a job as they possibly could have, you know, accounting for, for things that would have potentially skewed surgeons and practitioners in one direction over the other. You know, what they wanted to do was present cases where, um, again, there, there weren't factors that were going to skew strongly um, in one particular direction. Um, you know, clearly the, the use of scleral buckles, uh, at least, you know, primary buckle um, for the repair of retinal detachment has declined over time. Um, but I'd like to think that, you know, at some point we'll hit sort of a, a steady state uh, you know, as, as somebody who trains fellows like like most of us uh, on this call here, um, you know, I, I, I always tell my fellows that I've never regretted putting a buckle on, but certainly have encountered situations where um, I wish I'd put one on in hindsight. So um, I personally don't think that that my practice is going to change much. I'm going to continue to push forward with with buckles and encouraging my fellows to do them. There's a couple other interesting points to, to break down. And it's a retrospective study. Avni brought that up. So it's interesting to kind of think, well, the surgeons made their independent decisions. What kind of influenced those decisions? They may have their own practice preferences, but maybe there are some RD characteristics that differ. And if you look at the, for example, the quadrant that was involved, depending on the surgery, inferior detachments primarily make up the, uh, or infratemporal and supratemporal kind of even in the scleral buckle group versus in the vitrectomy alone group, it's more than half of them are supratemporal fewer inferior detachments. And that's kind of interesting because inferior detachments typically are a risk factor for PVR or redetachment, but we still had a higher success rate in the buckle group. Um, it's also interesting to look at the MAC on and MAC off kind of split in terms of what the characteristics were going into surgery. The buckle group, the majority of the patients were MAC on, 57% almost. The vitrectomy group, they were leaning more towards off and same with the buckle vitrectomy group. And, and it's interesting, Sabine, I, I don't know if what your thoughts on that. You know, it's not really a teaching point, at least where I was taught that MAC off versus MAC on should influence your decision about which surgery to use. Maybe there's other factors that were confounding that we aren't seeing here that were measured. But what do you make of that? Do you, do you think that 
the macula status should influence the choice of surgery? Uh, and why do you think it did? And when you look at this retrospective data? Yeah, so uh, my practice pattern matches yours, Jay. I do not use macula status to determine what my surgery is going to be. Uh, I'm going to look at where the breaks are, what the degree of peripheral pathology is, uh, and make whatever is the right assessment for that eye. Uh, but I do wonder if, uh, you know, surgeons have their quote-unquote A game, that they're, this is their go-to surgery. If the stakes are high, this is what they're going to do. And I do wonder if they feel like the pressure is more on on these macula on 2020 eyes, and do they feel the need to preserve that 2020 vision by doing something differently than they would for a macula off detachment that uh, you know they feel like, well, they've got some wiggle room, the macula's already off, the vision's already down. So I think that does end up playing into our psychology. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we can see a lot of these patients as add-ons to the OR, and that can also kind of impact your ability, your decision-making as to OR availability, how much time you get. And that's one of the things I really liked about the pro study is I thought this got to as real world as you could possibly get. There are so many factors when it comes to reattaching the retina that we don't consider. Uh, I don't know about your guys' environment, but sometimes hospitals are not available to us to operate on. And we have an ASC time and we have 60 minutes to get in and fix this eye for a maculon detachment. And that dictates what I am uh, able to do sometimes. And so that's the real world. And I think the pro study is really getting at that by looking at the real world at large centers who are requiring a lot of detachments. Great, great points. And, and Avni, you know, just kind of tie this with a bow, the other big outcome was this visual acuity difference where sclerobuckle group had significantly better visual outcomes than vitrectomy. They referenced that this was seen in prior studies. You go back to the early 90s, the SPR study showed this. And it's interesting that we've never been, been able to fully answer why that is. There's been some theories about retinal reattachment, how you reattach the retina, is there some sort of displacement? Thoughts on the differences in visual acuity outcomes independent of surgical success? Yeah, um, I mean, I think I think it's really interesting because they also make the point that even though the buckle group had more MAC on detachments, it was the, the visual outcomes were regardless of that MAC on MAC, you know, status. So, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. And we've seen similar results in like the pivot study where they looked at, you know, pneumatics um, having better visual outcomes. And, and I wonder if some of it is, is you know, we, in this study, we don't really look at ERM formation or metamorphopsia, but that can of course affect visual outcome. Um, you know, other people have sort of hypothesized that the RP pump um, working naturally maybe in those primary buckle groups is what really kind of helps them reattach in a more physiologic way and, and leads to better visual acuity. But I think the short answer is we don't really know, but we do see this effect that is important to know. And if you're right, there may be ripple effects in terms of if we do do a vitrectomy, how should we drain? And people have debated the best way to drain to get the best visual outcome. So let's shift gears, but not completely, because it's been said, this, the pro study is fantastic for many reasons. We've got a second paper from the pro study. This is primary retinal attachment outcome study, pseudophagic retinal attachment outcome. So this is pro study report number three. There's a whole bunch of these. And this one is looking at the pseudophagic patients. So uh, Brian, tell us a little bit about this study and the results. So Jay, similarly to uh, the study that Avni just finished up summarizing um, in, in the uh, study three, uh, the folks who put the paper together, uh, instead of comparing scleral buccal vitrectomy and combined buccal vitrectomy, they looked only at vitrectomy and combined buccal vitrectomy just because the, the number of cases in which uh, pseudophagic detachments were repaired with scleral buccal alone were what was really small. 
Um, and so again, this was a multi-center retrospective study, um, you know, drawing from six centers and uh, you know their surgeons' experience. Um, they also looked at um, you know single surgery anatomic success as well as final visual acuity. Uh, when looking at these patients and their retinal detachments, they quantified the detachment based on uh, clock hours per quadrant. They also sort of specified whether, you know, these were majority superior or predominantly superior and same for um, the inferior hemisphere of the retina, where, you know, majority uh, superior retinal detachment could be, you know, six clock hours of detachment superiorly and five clock hours inferiorly, whereas a predominantly superior or inferior detachment could only have a maximum of one clock hour on the opposite side of the horizontal meridian. Um, they looked at macular status where they looked, you know, they classified retinal detachments as MAC off, MAC on, or fovea splitting or threatening. Um, and ultimately they had 893 eyes to look at. Um, 684 of them underwent uh, vitrectomy alone, uh, 209 combined buccal vitrectomy, 36% um, were MAC on, 53% MAC off, and 11% MAC splitting. Um, when they looked at the single surgery anatomic success rate, it was about 84% for those who underwent primary vitrectomy and 92% uh, who went, um, who had, sorry, combined uh, buccal vitrectomy. And there was a significant difference there from a statistical standpoint. And when they looked at, um, you know, macular status and sort of anatomic location of the detachment, the single surgery anatomic success rate was higher in the combined buccal vitrectomy group for all subgroups. Um, looking at the few late redetachments that they had, so 25 out of the 893 patients, um, you know, they, they, they did well at three months and then detached later on down the road. 20 of those 25 were from the primary vitrectomy group. Um, looking at the demographics of the patients, the folks who uh, underwent combined buccal vitrectomy, they skewed younger. They were more likely to be MAC off. Uh, they had worse uh, preoperative uh, visual acuity and more involvement of inferior quadrants. So again, you know, it's impossible to eliminate selection bias completely, especially in a study like this one, but I think they did a good of a job as possible. Um, interestingly, uh, preoperative visual acuity uh, was better in the primary vitrectomy group, although postoperative uh, visual acuity was, was not significantly different uh, when you compared primary vitrectomy to combined buccal vitrectomy. And that may have been because the folks who did poorly um, after primary vitrectomy sort of you know, brought the average visual acuity down um, as far as predominantly superior versus inferior detachments, um, a higher percentage uh, received a primary vitrectomy if uh, they were predominantly superior and vice versa um, for combined buccal vitrectomy. Um, and when they looked at uh, majority inferior and majority superior uh, retinal detachments, there really weren't any differences. Uh, they also looked at differences in uh, single surgery and anatomic success. Uh, from gauge of vitrectomy used. Uh, so I was surprised with how many of these cases were done with 20 gauge vitrectomy. I've never seen 20 gauge done myself. Um, so between 20 gauge, 23, 25, there really wasn't any difference. Uh, they also looked at differences uh, between tamponades used. Um, between SF6 and C3F8, there didn't seem to be much of a difference, um, but with air or silicone oil, um, the single surgery uh, anatomic success rate was a little bit lower. Um, interestingly, the SSAS or single surgery anatomic success rate in predominantly superior retinal detachments uh, in the uh, primary vitrectomy group was uh, higher with C3F8 than with SF6. And I don't think they had a good explanation for that. Um, as far as, uh, you know, macular status, MAC off detachments, uh, 
single surgery anatomic success rate was about 83%, MAC on slightly better at 90%. Um, but again, when they looked at, you know, vitrectomy versus combined buccal vitrectomy, um, SSAS was significantly higher uh, regardless of macular status. So, you know, I would say that, you know, these results were consistent with, with you know, what we read and heard about um, from Pro Study 2 in the fake subset. Fantastic summary. And there's so many tasty morsels to kind of break down. You did a great job of summarizing all of them. Um, so then let, let's talk about the, the, the first one I want to reference, which is, again, sort of that skew we talked about, macula status, does it influence people's decision here? Very slight, but if you look at the breakdown MAC off versus MAC off versus split, 75% of the buccal VIC group was MAC off or split versus 60%. And 15% doesn't seem like a big difference. We have big numbers like this. So again, there does seem to be a tendency. Maybe it's just unconscious with the surgeon. Maybe there's other factors again we're not seeing, but maybe we just see things that look worse and we're just like, this needs a buckle. Um, and maybe it's maybe uh, more appropriate. Maybe the MAC off detachments are more chronic. I think there's a higher risk of reattachment. Um, that's one thing to comment on. And the other thing is the extent of the detachment, you know, tends to involve more of the inferior quadrants. You're talking about preoperative characteristics. Again, do any of these kind of influence your decision whether or not to put a buckle on? And what sort of things do make you inclined to place a buckle when you are doing a vitrectomy? So, yeah, it's such a, again, going back to the original discussion, it's really about the peripheral exam. And I think what you're kind of alluding to is that when you have somebody with a maculoff detachment, the probability of there being more peripheral pathology or perhaps even just a inability to fully assess the periphery and fully gauge how much we are talking about stiff retina uh, or are we getting early PVR? I think those are all factors that play in uh, the decision-making but may not always make it into the documentation. So again, the, one of the limitations here is that this is a retrospective study. And I feel like there's a lot of that decision-making that goes in internally, but may not actually make it to the chart when you're looking at the stuff retrospectively. So I feel like that is a part of it. Um, uh, and going back to my earlier point, I do think the timeline to repair, you know, the having the urgency of a macula on retinal detachment does place some constraints on what ability, what procedure you are able to uh, to do uh, in a timely fashion. Sometimes that may skew some surgeons more towards vitrectomy and others not. Uh, and I think there's the psychology aspect. Uh, you know, you want to do your A game or you want to do B as minimally invasive as possible by you know, I don't want to put a buckle on this because they're already 2020. I think all those play a factor. Great points, Sabin. And to your last point about, you know, the question of refractive status vision, you know, we sometimes have that decision. If someone's been Mac off for a while, maybe it's less important to us what the refractive status is. We're just trying to get the retina attached. Maybe we end a buckle. Maybe that's skewing kind of the surgeon decision making. Avni, any additional points about that idea about adding a buckle when you add it in a vitrectomy? And also, you know, kind of moving on to the next question, you know, if you look at the location of the detachments, you would expect, or at least based on things that are passed down sometimes, maybe inferior detachments would benefit more from adding a buckle in the setting of vitrectomy. Well, if you look at the single surgery success rate, it's kind of always better in the buckle bit group, regardless of the quadrant. So how do you kind of resolve that? And does the location of the detachment then did it influence your decision-making and has that changed based on this paper? Yeah, I think um, the first question, I think about adding a buckle sometimes when I'm not really sure where the break exists and, and sometimes when an, a detachment is more extensive, um, you know, that's when I'm a little bit more inclined to add a, a buckle to a, a bit. Um, especially in these pseudophagic patients, you can all, oftentimes have these tiny little breaks that are even hard to find when you're in there doing vitrectomy. 
Um, and then, yeah, I'm really surprised actually about the, the quadrants of the detachments um, not really playing a role in the anatomic success rate because I think about adding a buckle really most often in inferior quadrantic involving detachments. Uh, but it does make sense to me that, you know, in these pseudophagic patients where you might have really tiny little breaks, you might miss breaks and adding on that buckle really helps support those areas of potential missed breaks during surgery. Great points. And let's get to like the million dollar question, Brian, which is some people are going to look at this data and said, okay, the buckle of it increases your data, but what's your number needed to treat, right? So you are increasing the success rate overall. If you just look at them head to head, right? You're going from a success rate in MAC RDs, 81% to 89% in MAC RDs, 88% to 100%, which is great. Is that clinically significant? So some patients, people would say if they reattach, I can still get final anatomic success. And this goes back to this question of outcomes, right? So really what's our big thing here? Are we saying, yes, we should add a buckle all the time. Sometimes does this difference matter to you clinically? When do you add buckles for your vitrectomy patients? So, so I will admit, um, maybe somewhat shamefully so, that uh, when it comes to pseudophagic patients, you know, Sabin touched on it uh, to an extent, um, I try not to mess with the refraction, especially when folks have, you know, paid a good amount of money out of pocket for a multifocal lens or a toric lens. Uh, and that's something that I encounter somewhat frequently here. And, you know, they can always have, you know, keratorefractive refractive procedures done to sort of touch things up. But um, um, it's, it's really difficult to say. You know, I've anecdotally had good experience um, doing primary vitrectomy, even for predominantly inferior uh, regmatogenous attachments in pseudophagic patients. Um, sort of sidestepping for a second, um, one of the things that they don't really talk about much here is positioning. And, you know, obviously that's difficult to standardize and everybody has, has different principles and things that they like their patients to do. But um, I, I've personally had good experience with having patients side position for inferior detachments and inferior breaks and whether or not, you know, this is something that a lot of these folks were doing, I don't know. Um, but I guess even if they weren't, you know, the results were pretty good. I rarely will add a buckle um, for first surgery in a pseudophagic patient, but have done so in cases where there are, you know, lots of visible breaks. You know, obviously any type of PVR will skew me towards, you know, doing uh, a buckle at the same time as well. Um, but for the majority of patients, I, I tend not to add one. Um, you know, the data that we saw here uh, is similar to what we saw in the SPR study, where, you know, pseudophagic patients who had a buckle were less likely to redetach um, and sort of did better overall. So, you know, I feel like the, the folks who wrote the, the pro papers are trying to tell us something. Um, and so, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll start, uh, you know, moving in the direction of doing more buckles um, in my pseudophagues. Brian, you, asked a, you offered a very tasty preview of our next paper, but I'm not quite ready to move on to that subject. So we're going to come back to that thought about inferior RDs. But Sabin, I, I have two kind of thoughts I wanted to ask you about. You know, he referenced multifocal lenses, pro-con, right? Multifocal lenses, the patient prayed a lot for that. They can get multiple distance if they're happy with it. You don't want to mess with that. Con, sometimes in pseudofix, it's hard to see the periphery. Multifocal lenses, sometimes we know intraoperatively, it can be more difficult to see the periphery because of the different focuses, focal lens through the lens. And I've actually noticed anecdotally, and we've kind of looked into this and we haven't finished looking into this, is sometimes those multifocal patients, you could put a buckle on them and it doesn't seem to change the refraction much. And I wonder if they're using like a different ring. I'm not a multifocal expert. I wonder if it's maybe allows them still to kind of see enough to maintain their intermediate as well as their distance. 
And my other question is, you know, Brian brought up this idea of buckling. When do we buckle? And I've been asking all of you. And you know, one, does age play a factor for you? We have pseudo fakes who are younger and younger. We have young myopes now who are so eager to get out of glasses, they're going to go get early clear lens extraction. Does age or the degree of preoperative myopia prior to cataract surgery change anything for you besides your peripheral exam? Those are great questions, Jay. I'm gonna answer your last question first because uh, for me, it makes a huge difference. I think the younger age patients, they have much more formed vitreous. And at the end of the day, I wanna remove as much traction as possible. And I feel like my ability to do that in a younger patient may be hampered. Uh, and I'm so much more inclined to put a buckle on a, on a younger patient. Uh, regarding the multifocal IOLs, that is something that is uh, impacts my practice pretty significantly. I get calls from referral uh, referring surgeons who say, hey, this is my post-op multifocal IOL. I did the premium everything on them. Don't put a buckle on them. I don't want the refraction to change. And my response is, at the end of the day, it's my job to fix that retina, and I'm going to fix it the best way I can because it, it doesn't help the patient if they stay chronically detached or they become count fingers or whatever. So uh, it's a hard conversation to have with referring doctors, but I feel like it's an important point that yes, these patients paid for premium IOLs, but they did it because they value their vision and we need to respect that and give them the vision, even if it ends up that they need contact lenses or refraction. Uh, the other thing that comes up in my practice, at least in the Midwest is accommodative IOLs. And I don't know how many of you guys have had to work through uh, repairing an RD with an accommodative IOL, but I have a flat out rule. I put a buckle on all those patients. I just cannot see through those plates, uh, the plate haptics. I can depress and there is so much pathology I might miss there. And for all those patients, I just put on the buckle. So uh, no question, multifocal status does impact my decision on putting on a buckle. And to that point, I'm going to reflect my age. Brian was like all these 20 gauge cases. Well, back in my day, young feller, uh, we did we did see 20 gauge retractomies, and you know, accommodative IOLs were all the rage at some point before multifocals. I remember as a medical student, all these accommodative IOLs going in. Thankfully, it seems like the incidence has gone down. Maybe regionally, uh, Sabin in your area, there's still are several patients with that. I actually agree. Um, I actually buckle those patients pretty pretty uh, routinely as well. And we're just going to see more and more patients though. More multifocal options come out that are better and better we're going to have to maybe, you know, try to work around that when we buckle patients. Well, thank you guys for contributing to this discussion. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with a couple more papers after the break. Let's move on to the next article, right? So the next article is our final kind of pro study report for now. This is retinal detachment with inferior retinal breaks. So Brian just touched on this subject. This is pro study report number three, primary vitrectomy versus vitrectomy with scleral buckle. Sabine, Take us through this. What were the designs of the study and what were the results? Great, well, Avni and Brian, you did a great job summarizing the PRO study. So I'm just gonna focus on the kind of specifics that this uh, this study was looking at. To kind of recap, what's the, why do we worry about inferior retinal detachments? And it's really these, we worry about them more because it's harder to tamponade inferior breaks. We talked about positioning. That is more challenging with this inferior pathology. And also we worry about PVR. Gravity is gonna tend PVR to be inferior. And as that PVR develops, it's gonna put traction on that inferior pathology. It may make new breaks. It may reopen breaks that we've treated with laser. Uh, and all of that can result in redetachment. So the question is, you know, can we adequately address those risk factors with vitrectomy or is scleral buckle vitrectomy superior in that? Uh, and so that's what this pro 
uh, paper was evaluating. So it's important when we're looking at methods, we've already discussed its retrospective nature and you guys are familiar with that now, but really what was the inclusion criteria for this? Like, so we can really map uh, you know, our patients to this study and it's inclusion of, it included patients who had breaks between five and seven, but it's important to note that it did not require those breaks to be the primary or even causative retinal break for the detachment. So these patients could have breaks elsewhere and it could be a superior temporal break that is guttering down and that's actually what's causing your detachment. But if you also noted an inferior break at six o'clock, then it would meet inclusion criteria. So it's not just inferior RDs we're talking about, we're really talking about is there an inferior break, um, even if it's not the causative thing. So let's jump into the actual results. Uh, 238 eyes out of the entire sample met uh, inclusion criteria. 40% of those eyes went through vitrectomy. 60% of those eyes uh, went through buccal vitrectomy. Single surgery success rate was 77% in the vitrectomy group and 87% in the uh, buccal vitrectomy group. Uh, this study performed a sub-analysis where we looked at just uh, patients who were phacic and the single surgery success rate for buccal vitrectomy was 85%. Uh, and the vitrectomy group alone dropped down to 69%. So there's a, a couple things that the authors point out in the discussion that I, I, I think are important. Number one is they, they flat out say, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there in literature that says there is, that people have achieved high success rate with vitrectomy only with inferior RDs. Uh, but again, one of the earlier points I made is I thought this was a great uh, retrospective series because I feel like this is real world. This is actually what's happening in major centers. So even though there are case series there, I think that uh, you know this is could probably mimics what we see in real life, at least in the United States. The other thing the authors are pointing out is scleral buckle is not a benign procedure. I mean, there is a lot of associated risk with performing scleral buckle. We're talking about extrusion. We've touched on refractive errors. There's diplopia. Um, and it's also a more uncomfortable procedure. At the end of the day, patients are gonna feel that more. And so, you know, we have to balance that in. And Jay, I think you brought up pretty good points about, you know, what is the ultimate outcome? Is it single surgery success? Is it ultimate vision? Uh, and when we look at that, that's the final point that I'm gonna make with this article is vision was not statistically different between the two groups. So we as physicians, when we're interpreting this data, we really have to figure out what is the most important thing to us. Is it one and done? The surgery is going to be, we're going to take care of it. I want to be, or you can say, I want to be as minimally invasive as possible. I'm going to do a vitrectomy only, knowing that, hey, this study supports me in that if I do a vitrectomy only and they fail, I can still get them to the same visual outcome. Um, and you can argue both sides. I'd love to hear what you guys think. Great, great summaries have been some really excellent points and really relevant to talk about risks of buckling, not just diplopia and extrusion, infection, um, with drainage and supercortical hemorrhage incarceration if you're doing a straight buckle um, and refractive shift we, we referenced earlier. Avni, you know, we talk about buckling and the setting of vitrectomy. Does the phacic percentage surprise you? I mean, this is pretty low in terms of single surgery anatomic success. And, and again, to put this in context, Sabin Red did reference, there are studies that have shown a very high success rate for inferior phacic detachments with vitrectomy. That being said, this is a real world study and the groups that are contributing to this study are prominent respected groups. If you look at the groups that have contributed, the authors have contributed. So these are generally people you'd assume are doing best surgical practices. We all debate what those are, but 
this is a real world study and it's telling you two thirds of the time, yeah, you can get reattachment. A third of the time, you're gonna have to go back. And so to me, that is the most stark example here of is single surgery success? What's the number needed to treat? Well, to me, this is swinging the other way where the number needed to treat here is, I mean, I don't, I need to save that one out of three patients from getting a reattachment. Now, 85% is not perfect either, but it's significantly better. Did that number surprise you? And then what is your general approach for fake inferior RDs? Uh, that number did actually surprise me, especially because we, we see a lot of case series that people report that, you know, they did vitrectomy alone on a bunch of inferior RDs and, you know, most of those patients did quite well. And so it's hard to take those case series um, and extrapolate, you know, real world, real world data from them, which is the closest this is giving us. Um, and, that, and that did surprise me, but I think that there are reasons for that. You know, it's harder to shave the vitreous completely in these phacic patients, right? So um, there's, a, there's a surgeon factor there and a visualization factor and a reach factor of how much vitreous we can get out in these patients. And that can potentially lead to PVR and subsequent redetachment, right? Um, so I think that that's a potential explanation for it, but the the sheer number, I think, of um, non-successful surgeries with just PPV alone did surprise me. For me, um, inferior phacic detachments, uh, there's almost no doubt that those patients are getting a buckle for me. Um, I'm a, a big buckler, and if there's an inferior detachment, especially in a phacic patient, they're e either getting a buckle or a buckle bit. So um, that's really kind of my decision tree on, on, on those patients, unless, you know, that it's really clear to me that that break is up top, um, somewhere superiorly, or even in maybe like temporally or nasally, and that fluid is just kind of tracking down. Those are the cases where I might consider a primary vitrectomy alone. Great points. And, and again, there's other factors that have been talked about this earlier that are not captured necessarily, right, when we talk about pathology. We're not capturing the degree of myopia. We're not capturing the hyloid status of these patients. Maybe inferior phacic detachments are more often to have the hyloid down and have small breaks with a slow progressive detachment. I think most of us would argue, again, we're all biased, but we're retrained. We'd all argue that's probably a better candidate for a primary buckle or a buckle vitrectomy versus vitrectomy alone. And I'm biased like you. I mean, for me, phacic detachments, especially phacic inferior detachment, for me, it's buckle plus or minus a bit, not bit plus or minus a buckle. Um, Brian, you talked about positioning earlier. And again, that's the other thing we're not capturing here is we don't know how these patients were advised to position. The classic teaching is face down in the old days, seven to 14 days. Some people still do a week. I'm with you about side positioning uh, for inferior detachments. Are there scenarios where you'll do an inferior phacic detachment as a vitrectomy alone? And, and, and let's, let's take that one step further. Avni referenced a gutter detachment or the break is up top and there's gutter fluid. I'm saying if the break is below, like was described in this paper. So, so the short answer is no. Um, like Avni, um, phacic inferior detachment with causative break or breaks inferiorly, uh, pretty much 100% of the time, um, I'm going to be uh, doing combined buckle vitrectomy or, you know, like, like you said, primary buckle if, if the hyaloid is down. Um, you know, I, I suppose if I were to end up in a hypothetical situation where maybe a patient had had an, you know, number of strabismus surgeries or something like that, and I weren't confident um, that I'd be able to get a buckle on safely and, 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 and make sure it was well-placed, I might consider doing a vitrectomy. Um, but 
you know, barring something like that or previous glaucoma surgery, uh, which would also complicate the situation, um, I would probably plan to, to do at least a buckle and potentially do a vitrectomy. Um, one of, I just want to point out something else about these studies. You know, we, we talked about, you know, them not indicating hyaloid status for, for these folks. You know, I, I found it interesting that, you know, they just sort of used age as, as a sort of assumption or, or, or surrogate um, for whether or not the, the hyaloid may or may not be, be detached. But that for me um, is a big factor in, in my surgical decision-making. Um, I'm much more likely to go in uh, to an eye if the hyaloid is up. Um, and, and, you know, the, the converse is also true. The hyaloid's down, you know, I'm, I'm almost always going to try to, to take care of it with a primary buckle first. A great point. And sometimes you also have that, that gut feeling that maybe the hyaloid looks up and your fellow says the hyaloid's definitely up and you see this patient's a 24 year old and you're like, there's almost certainly vitreoschisis and there's going to be another level, especially in high myo. Um, you had a, you had a point about tamponade uh, regarding the study. Yeah, I mean, so in inferior detachments, I think that tamponade choice is actually really important because um, those are the patients that I often think about putting in a longer acting tamponade because you want to support those inferior breaks potentially for a longer amount of time. So um, one of the things I thought was interesting was in some of the other pro studies, they did a lot of sub-analyses on the tamponade choice. Um, and we didn't really see a lot of that here. So we didn't see, you know, how many patients in the vitrectomy um, arm had C3F8 or even silicone oil um, that was removed later, same with the buccal vitrectomy arm. So that would have been really interesting data, I think, to see and could have informed some of that anatomic success rate. Or even temporary perfluoron, although Steve Charles, who's talked about that, was not a, a co-author or surgeon on this study. Uh, Sabine, on the topic of PFO, thoughts on PFO, silicone oil, tamponade choice? You were reading my mind, Jay. I was, as we were having this discussion, I was really thinking about PFO. So my take on this, just to clarify, is I love buckles for inferior RDs, but I am interested in alternatives. You know, the ultimate reason we are worried that these aren't, fa uh, these are failing is, as I'd mentioned in the introduction, the, uh, the inability to tamponade properly inferiorly. So if we were to do temporary PFO, can we be treating these patients more effectively? Is that all it needs where they can do upright positioning with a little PFO bubble, bring them back a week or two later, take the PFO out and they may be in great shape. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing that data come out as time comes on. And I do suspect that will actually improve primary vitrectomy rates, even in fake patients uh, with primary PPV. But at the moment, that's not something I'm, I'm willing to do with my patients. This I don't have the data to support it. That's a great point. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just comment. Avni may have comment as well, because I know she trained um, at Duke where, where Tamara Mood was initially doing a lot of these autologous transplants where you do stage with perfluoron in the eye. So I have done these macular holes autologous transplants, not to get off topic, where you put perfluoron in the eye and you leave it and you come back and take the perfluoron out in a different surgery. And the eye can tolerate it well, but there certainly is a point at which the eye develops inflammation um, and PFO does tend to be inflammatory. And so my only worry, and I've heard of horror stories from, from doctors who have seen patients with PFO left in the eye, is do certain patients react poorly to that? Does it result in something different to highlight? I just don't have experience using it for detachments. And so the people who have spoken about it, like you know, Dr. Charles and others are very, very prominent surgeons. And it's interesting to investigate, it'd be interesting to see the outcomes. But I, I think the other thing that's, that you brought up that, that's interesting is 
you know, the, the idea of has success actually improved over time? That's something that's not looked at with this study. This study is reporting from a single you know, year recently in the last five years, but have we actually gotten better at repairing retinal detachments in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years? And if you look at the single surgery success rate, pseudo fake fake, all these studies we've looked at, it's not significantly better than it was if you look at the studies from the 90s and 2000s. So you're right about pushing the envelope. Just because the single surgery success rate is not better doesn't mean we're not better with less invasive, less risky, better tolerated procedures. But are we actually moving the needle or are we just changing kind of the different tools? They look cooler, they look fancier, they're fat, they're smart, they seem smarter, but we're kind of ending up with the same result. And that you kind of started that point by saying you love buckles and buckles have been done now for decades, well before vitrectomy was done. Avni, any thoughts on PFO left in the eye since you've seen this in, in your experience? Yeah, um, not, I haven't actually seen that many of the, of these patients, but, but like you, um, some of these patients do develop really severe inflammation. And so that's something I'd be worried about, but a, a lot tolerate it pretty well. Um, so I think it, it, it would be interesting to kind of see the data of people that are using it more widely and in, in more numerous cases.